Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, April 12th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, a volunteer seine operator. Our guest today is Stuart Valadolid from Big Ray's Fishing Department in Anchorage. And when I asked Stuart what fish he wanted to talk about with us, I got an enthusiastic sablefish all the way to the grill. Yeah. <laughs> so that's our fish of the week. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about them, Stuart? It, well, for me, my background with sablefish was through my dad, who ran a processing plant at a Kodiak, Alaska. And when he would be, he would buy uh, sable fish from a lot of the boats. And luckily, since he ran the processing plant, he'd, he'd bring home a couple of those sable fish or black cod is that what we called them. And it was a staple in our household, at least, you know, once or twice a month. It was really, really good. Outside of Kodiak, uh, I did have an opportunity to observe a trawler that got into a, a bunch of them. Uh, some adolescents, and I, and I, I kind of got more into the biology and why, you know, these fish hang out in this particular column during a stage of their maturity. And then as they get older, they start going deeper and deeper and deeper where there's not as many predators and better food sources for them. I think the eggs are actually, they, they spawn down deep where the adults are. Then as they're like, when, when they go up to hatch, I don't know how quickly it is after hatching or if they float up before they hatch, they'll be up at the surface and then slowly move down over their lives. So it's kind of an interesting vertical migration that they go through during the early part of their lives. And then as adults, they actually migrate great distances just horizontally along the seafloor into different places uh, up there in Alaska. Right. It's amazing the pressure they can handle. I mean, and also their diet. I love, I'm a big fan of bioluminescence. And they're big squid and octopus eaters and chasing deep, you know, just by fishing, fishing for black cod. I've also caught other different species down deep, many, you know, 100 plus pound halibut, you know, in the 16, 1500 foot range, you know, trying to chase the, the sable fish. That is so crazy deep. I can't even imagine kind of what it looks like down there. It's super cool. In terms of the name sable fish, kind of like a lot of the other fish we've talked about, it seems like there's a lot of common names. You mentioned black cod. I right. also read them. I think butterfish, coalfish. Um, yeah. Some of the names like butterfish are actually names of other species. Right. And I was reading a little bit, and it said the FDA sablefish is kind of like the accepted common name, but black cod's like a, a vernacular that's right. used locally a lot. I think the name sablefish actually comes from being related to the, the texture of the fish. That, now, sable is actually a Eurasian species of marten, a mustelid, you know, like the weasel family, and has really soft fur. And I was reading somewhere, and I don't know if this is true or not, but that the name sablefish comes from the smooth texture of the flesh. They are very smooth fish. Their uh, meat is also in, on a softer texture side, too. It's kind of buttery, too, right? Oh man, it's amazing. <laughs> well, it's it got a really oil, high oil content to it, to their meat. So, I mean, you could leave that fillet on the frying pan for an hour and it still tastes good after leaving it on the hour. Wow. Yeah, my awesome. one friend said you can't really overcook yeah. the table fish. Yeah, so I guess related to that oil, I mean, we were talking a little bit about swim bladders the other week. Yeah. And, you know, apparently the oil is one of the ways they kind of regulate their buoyancy. Is that correct, Guy? 
Yeah, sablefish have actually, they're one of these demersal species that have uh, lost their swim bladder through evolution. It just isn't advantageous to have it down there. But you still want to try to be neutrally buoyant in the water column. So some fish that don't have swim bladders rely on oil to help buoy them up. Most famous example is probably sharks and other elasmobranchs that have big livers uh, full of squalene. And even species that live really deep that do have swim bladders like cod oftentimes have very large livers. But yeah, the, this using oil to help keep yourself neutrally buoyant is common among fishes. What's the deepest that you've ever set your line for one of these, Stuart? I went at uh, 2,300 feet just the south end of Lone Island there. I went as, as far deep as I could find in Prince William Sound. And I remember the name of the shark. It was a sleeper shark now, because that's where I caught it. It was right off the south end of Lone Island. And as we were drifting from 2300 coming up, that's where I got into the shark in the 1600 foot mark. And uh, it was pretty awesome pulling that thing up. <laughs> that's crazy. How long a fight was that? I know the sleeper sharks aren't the species this week, but... Well, luckily I'm using really big electric reels that help me uh, bring them up without using a lot of my muscle groups. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you had a special workout regime to get your arms ready for reeling them in, but it sounds like the electric reels are the way to go. Major bonus when it came to the electric reels. It pretty much took away the, the fatigue and the, the mo me to motivate myself to start cranking up that thousand yards of line. <laughs> Do you, so uh, you usually use those electric reels when you're uh, fishing for these guys all the time? Yeah, I back at, about 11 years ago when I, I started getting into it, I used to use really big pen senators that were not to traditional Alaskan size. They were more in the 10 to 16 knot, which if you think of a regular watermelon, that's how big the reel was at the time that I was using. And I would have about 800 yards of 65-pound Dacron, which is way thicker than what our braids that we're using on our fishing reels now. And I would fill up a, uh, since we're only allowed two hooks on, on a rod and reel for, per resident, I would um, send down, I would fill up a can of uh, Campbell soup cans with quick crete with an eye bolt and a rubber band. And I would donate the concrete to the bottom of the ocean because I didn't want to bring up that extra two, three pounds of uh, weight as I was fighting the fish. And uh, that was kind of how I started. And then technology, you know, got better and I fell in love with these electric reels that you know, I almost had to donate a kidney to get back then because they were so expensive. And once those electric reels got in my possession, it opened up every single part of Prince William Sound for me without having to do any cranking. And it uh, got me to explore areas that no one would ever think about reeling in or checking down there. Is there any safety considerations for those electric reels or are they just kind of good to go? They're pretty much good to go. So if you're going to fish down a thousand feet, you descend it by, you know, free spooling it all the way down. And as it hits bottom, you you flip the bail. And I generally take it up a, a, about 15 to five meters off the bottom. And if I get a fish on, I hit the throttle. And there's a default to where the line will stop about 15 feet underneath the boat. So I don't have a fish swing around the top or my leads or jigs banging against the boat or the or the uh, outboard yep. and then I, uh, the nice thing about that is I just crank the rest of the 15 up with the manual crank versus using the throttle because having that throttle that last 15 feet can create problems where you want to suck the line all the way in through the rod and yep. break the rod so I always recommend everybody to crank the last, last 15 feet and uh, really keeps safety you know high and 
any of the human ear problems low. Hey there, everyone. One thing that we want you to always keep in mind, regardless of what it is that you're fishing for, is safety. Every week we're going to give you a tip or two that you can use to stay safe while you're fishing. Today we are talking about hook-related injuries, how to prevent them, and how to treat them. If you fish long enough, eventually somebody's hook is going to end up hooking you. Anglers often find themselves hooked when fishing in close quarters, such as on a boat, but can also get snagged a myriad of other ways, such as when freeing a snag lure from across the river. Wearing long sleeves, pants, and sunglasses can block some hooks from going into the skin, but some will still find a way. Barbless hooks are easy to remove simply by backing them out the way they came in. However, if a barber's pierced the skin, things can get more complicated. The first method, which will save the hook, is to apply perpendicular downward pressure to the shank of the hook and then back the whole thing out the way it came in, possibly with the assistance of some string around the bend of the hook. If that method doesn't work, you can continue pushing the hook through the skin until the barb re-emerges on the other side. Then you can snip it off with some pliers and back it out. Remember, the easiest hook to remove is the one that never gets in the skin. So always check over your shoulder so that you don't snag your buddy on your back cast. How far uh, offshore are you having to go to get these guys? You know, it's not that out of Prince William Sound. It's such a abyss out there. I mean, you could be out in Port Wells. I mean, four four miles from Whittier, and you're in a great sable ecosystem or habitat for them. Pretty much any bays that feeds that any salmon feed into, I fish outside those bays where it drops off in the extreme depths. So as bays get flushed out through tide, those sable fish wait for a lot of that fall to come down. Or also there's a ton of uh, spotted shrimp out in Prince William Sound for them to vacuum up and a vast amount of uh, squid and octopus out there too. So their habitat and ecosystem there in Prince William Sound is great. And the pressure isn't that bad, I feel, for them. In terms of what sable fish are eating naturally, what kind of bait are you using when you're fishing for them? Primarily, I'm using octopus just because it's a little tougher to not get robbed by any other fish species. I've noticed that if I put herring or anything like that, it'd get robbed and, and picked at, you know, piece by piece. Because we're, we're displaying this bait anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour, you know, and it was when you got. 800 yards of line down there and you're and you're feeling you know it's hard to even see the nibble so you got to see the the main takedown when they get hooked up are you fishing right on the bottom for them i am fishing right on the bottom about i I try to get about 15 feet off the bottom so i have um, a indicator line that lets me know how each color lets me know a depth so I, i crank up a color and that lets me know that i'm 15 feet off the bottom and then i've got some my my theory to catch them is sight, sound, and scent, you know, is my theory. So a blinking light, hmm. the sight, the sound of my my uh, jig clinking around, and then the scent of the bait, you know, being around. Okay. And that blinking light is key because of the bioluminescence. I mean, you're 18, 1,500 feet, there's, there's no light, you know, penetrating down there. So having that little blinking light is like a pretty good beacon to give them a... Little target. A, a little target to go to yeah and are you jig- you're just jigging it up and down slightly or what's your motion a little bit i try not to I let the boat kind of do it for me mm-hmm. what happens is i get too excited <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then i i'll get frustrated if i if i'm on top of the rod so i just let it do its thing until it starts dancing 
And my friends and on the meantime, either are fishing a different column because generally not everybody has an electric reel that can go that that deep. So it's generally like one or two reels that are do, are doing it. Are you using circle hooks or J hooks for these rigs? Yep. So good question. I'm using circle hooks since I'm not really paying attention to the rod and reel that often. So I let the hook do the do its job. Is there any considerations with tidal movement or anything at that depth or when to, when uh, yeah, to be set good in line? Question. So I try to use the lower moon face, the so lower tides. That way my bait's displayed a little better and my gear isn't getting thrashed around because it could be quite turbulent, you know, down there. Are these kind of like a fish that when you find them, you start hooking into them, you can hook into them all day or do you got to keep searching around? No, that this is one that you kind of have to search around. I, I've, when it comes to the adolescents, they will concentrate more. But when it comes to the the adults, they're more sporadic than uh, the adolescents. The adolescents will school up more. Uh, and I, I've seen them, you know, in the hundred foot mark, and I've caught them, you know, jigging for rockfish and stuff. So, Stuart, you mentioned bioluminescence. So, are they eating stuff that glows, or you know, yeah? Just tell us a little bit more about that, please. Yeah, so they do. Mainly, there. I, I feel Prince William Sound's got the highest abundance of spotted shrimp. So I feel they're going to be the highest food source for your sable fish. And then also your squid and octopus, which are also deep dwelling fish down there. I know spotted shrimp, when they feel attacked, they will poop. And when they poop, it's actually throwing out a blue light is what they're doing. And what they do, what that blue light is, it makes the predator think that that blue light's a shrimp instead of the shrimp. And it gives the shrimp a chance to swim away. Interesting. And so literally the, the phrase of scaring the crap out of the shrimp is literally like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. We deal with a lot of shrimp poop when we go shrimping. I thought that was really cool that they shoot shoot these blue lights out of their butt. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's when I started putting blue lights in my shrimp pots and on my on my black cod jigs. Okay, so you mentioned you like to go during shrimp season, right? So that's coming right up here. April 15th right. is the opener, right? Yep, can't wait. And then I, I'll, I'll probably hang out in the sound most through April through the mid of July, and then I'll bounce back from Seward to uh, Prince William Sound throughout the year. Okay, you catch them out of Seward too? I have. I have. I've caught them inside Resurrection Bay, um, oh. about 800 feet. Um, okay. Bad, you know, bad weather day where we couldn't go outside, and I was like, well, let's go deep, and we got the electric reels, and we got in the. Two sable fish and a bunch of halibut that were sixty to eighty pounds at oh, eight hundred wow. feet deep outside wow. of Thumb Cove. And That's crazy. Okay, so you mentioned um grilling these fish is that your favorite way to cook them or do you have some favorite recipes oh man i do them like i do them three different ways grilling is probably the most popular uh just because of time of season i lay it on i lay tinfoil on the grill and i lay the filet down and then i really don't have to do much to sable fish literally you can put it on there a little bit of garlic and salt and pepper and that's it i mean uh i mean taking a bite of that is i don't know how to explain it i mean it's like holding your child for the first time it's just, you know it's like awesome <laughs> it is so good and it's like a really right. white meat right 
It is a very white meat, very soft. The other style that I do, which is really popular in the restaurants, is it's a miso style, more Asian style of uh, cuisine. And that ginger flavor and everything is mm. awesome to die for. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's what got me into spending thousands of dollars to go out there and chase these fish, you know, from April to July and acquire, I try to acquire at least 18 a season and then I'm mm-hmm. done. That's enough for my, you know, for me and my family to be happy for the whole year. But when it comes to cooking and diet, I, I would say the, the grilling, a little the salt, you know, salt, pepper and garlic and uh, even some flakes of ginger is all you need to do. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's Thanks, been Stuart. great learning about uh, sablefish from you. This was fascinating. Awesome. Yeah, thanks delicious. for having me, guys. Yeah. Oh, I, please try it, guys. Give it. Please try it. You'll appreciate me after that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, get out there and enjoy all the fish, everybody. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. The show is produced by David Hoffman, co-produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Publication facilitated by Kelsey Course. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community. Individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.